This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Brought to you in part by International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, 
and main Operation Game Thief. Captain to Colonel, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had a uh, situation and our chief left and um, basically the, uh, uh, the major at the time was Greg Sanborn, who I absolutely admire. Uh, one of the, probably the most honest man I know, an ethical man I know, and probably bleeds green as much as anyone I know. And mm. they obviously advertised it and put it out. And I think they had seven or eight people apply and I didn't apply. I felt I'm an old school guy and I kind of feel like people that put you in places and you support your time may come. It may not, but it's when it's their turn, it's their turn. And I supported him and I didn't apply. And mm-hmm. I had some people ask why, and I just didn't. And I felt I had a good shot at maybe being the major for mm-hmm. Greg because, you know, Greg thought a lot of me and we worked closely in the main office. There was no guarantee, but I felt right. confident. So they went through the whole testing process and um, they didn't hire the major and they didn't hire the other seven people. Oh, I guess it'd been two weeks and uh, they notified the major he wasn't getting the job and the commissioner called me and said, hey, we'd like you to put in for the colonel's job. I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. I'm, you know, 34 (laughs) years old and young kids at home. And I'd seen what our colonels had gone through in the Mm -hmm. past. And I also seen the evolution of the job changing, the uh, public's expectation. Yeah. uh, From when I first came on to that time. And I'm like, boy, this is going to be tough. And there was some challenges that were going on with our chief leaving. And um, they, what he'd done it, he, he had pulled, um, he'd pulled a number of wardens in the department and said, who do you think would be a good colonel? And they gave him three names, and I was one of the three names. And there was two other sergeants who I uh, – it was Dave Craven and Tom Ward were the other two names. Mm-hmm. And I remember calling them up, and they're like, nope, we're not doing it. <laughs> you need to put in. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, no, we can't. We've, you know, we're too vested where we are. It's too big of a commute. You're already down there. And uh, <laughs> we'll support you 100%, buddy. Slap me on the back. And, uh, yeah, so I told the commissioner I needed to talk to my wife. And I needed to talk to the major. Mm. Um, and I went down, I talked with Greg, God rest his soul. He passed away of cancer as yeah. my major. And he looked me right in the eye and says, you need to take it and you'll have my 110% support. And you're the only guy that uh, right now that I can say I can do that for. Wow. So we took that journey together mm. and I never could have done it without Greg's support. He'd worked in the office. We started down a bumpy road for a little while and, uh, at the time, we had been reorganized. We'd lost three of our lieutenant's positions. Mm. They'd taken two of our regional lieutenants and placed them in Augusta, and it was a cluster. It was just, it was a mess. And uh, we set the goal to rebuild our old structure and get three lieutenant's positions back and um, build a team that we felt um, had a good vision for where we needed to go. And we did it. You know, we had a lot of time to do it. We had a number of years um, through attrition to pick some good quality leaders that people would follow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I argue with people all the time. They, I always say hard work beats talent and people says no way. And I think Greg and I were a good example of that because, mm-hmm. uh, we weren't probably the sharpest people, but we certainly were committed and we worked a lot of hours and did a lot of things outside of the box to get us to where we had to be. And, um, I attribute the majority of that success to Greg just being step in step with me and doing it. So, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's a, it's a pretty awesome story when it comes to supervision and, and, and the way you went about it with yep. going to see the major, yep. getting his support. Yeah. Because let's face it, if you guys were at odds in no, that office, be a mess. it would have been a mess and you would have never been able to be successful. And yep. and yeah. he never looked back and we never looked back. And 
uh, we look, I looked at him as an equal, mm-hmm. you know, a title is just that. And yeah, I always say, if you get to tell people you're the boss, you're not the boss. Exactly. And I try to tell, you know, supervises that when they pull it. And <laughs> I think it's a personality thing. Some people get it, but, um, you have to build that, you know, you have a certain amount of authority in a position in a quasi military organization, but to really move the core mass, they got to believe in you mm-hmm. and, uh, your team. And that's the philosophy we had. We never asked anybody to do anything we wouldn't do. Uh, we were seen, uh, doing stuff that probably other colonels hadn't done. And we did some things that were definitely, um, outside of the box and Greg and I didn't always agree, but I had enough respect for him and boy, we'd argue about it behind closed doors. But when we left there, whatever the decision was, we were in step. No yeah. one, no one would ever known. Yeah. Yeah. No one would ever known. And, and it's great to have opposing opinions at times. So you get that other side of the coin. Oh. I'm all about, uh, and our team, our whole team was diverse, different, different skill sets. Um, our whole leadership team, our management team. And I wanted people who's going to tell me, you know, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And challenge me. Cause I had some, you know, everything's every day was an education. Mm-hmm. You know, every decision you make not only impacts your, you know, 125 plus employees and all your admin staff and their families, mm-hmm. little decisions. And I realized in a hurry things I could say as a sergeant or even a captain, yeah. you just, you, you had to be mindful of how you said it right? and the delivery of it because you're now the boss. Mm-hmm. People are sensitive to that when they care, yeah. when they care about their job and they're invested and they're, st- they're spending time away from their families, how you interact with your people and how you treat them um, is the most important thing you'll do because you can go budget years and not have equipment. Mm-hmm. You lose your human resource in this profession you're in trouble. Right. And I've seen some states that are in trouble mm-hmm. yep, because of that. Right. Um, Even look at businesses, the successful businesses treat their employees well. Yeah. Those employees like working there. Yeah. They enjoy it. And that's the, that's a model to, to, you know, we only have so much resources within the state and federal government, but we, we have a lot of leadership skills that can make it easier. Like sure. you said, when you don't have those things, you know, you, you, you understand, you can, you can go down there and have a t- discussion with them. Hey, right. this is what we're working with now. This is what we're going to do. And this is, we're moving on. And this is how we're going to progress in a different manner because we don't have that. Right. Well, what's great about the profession of uh, being a game warden, I don't care if it's Nevada, <laughs> California, Washington, Maine, Alaska, we're a rare breed. Yes. And the esprit de corps among uh, game wardens is the highest and I've worked in other law enforcement organizations. I interact with them now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the esprit de corps is through the roof. We fight like cats and dogs yeah. over cases and who's like district. Family. Just like <laughs> district lines. But I, but as far as dedication, mm-hmm. I would put a team of game wardens up against anybody. Me too. Yeah. 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 And some of the toughest decisions I had in my whole career was as a supervisor because – they weren't my personal decisions. They were the best decision for everybody, right. especially when it comes to personnel. Mm-hmm. That is one of the toughest things when you have to tell someone that's senior, you know, that we, we chose somebody that was junior right? Um, because they were a better fit. And those, I think, a one decision I made when I had to pick a sergeant, and it was uh, the toughest decision I ever, ever had. Both great candidates. One had a different set of skills oh, yeah. that I needed. Right. Um, and that was the toughest decision I ever had to make. Well, and I think the worst mistake anybody can ever make is not being honest with the person you have to deliver bad news to. Right. Because they may not agree with you, but they're going to respect the fact that you at least had 
the courage to be honest with them. And mm-hmm. they may they may differ from you. They may mm-hmm. say, no, I don't agree with you. I still think. But but at the end of the day, and I've had a number of wardens that I still talk to or ones that retired that I may have had disagreements over the years that always said that to me. And mm-hmm. I and to me, that was, for me, that was the thing that made me the most proud. Um, we may not always agree, but I'm, I'm never going to lie to you. Mm-hmm. And I don't expect you to ever lie to me. I'm never going to embarrass you in front of a crowd. I expect you never to embarrass me. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, it was a, you're looking at him as a peer, not a boss um, to employee relationship. And we all started in the same place. Mm-hmm. We all started, you know, sitting in the bushes with spotting scopes and chasing night hunters <laughs> and missing suppers, right? So That's right. why would I in any way, shape or form uh, think because of this new role, I had, I had the ability to then change that communication level. Mm. You know, it bit me a few times, but I, but at the end of the day, I was always honest and I always told them, you know, with me, um, if you make a mistake, everybody made them, I made them, come in and fall on your sword, let's talk about it and get through it. Because right. if I can trust you, and you mm-hmm. can trust me, then there ain't anything we can't do. Right. Absolutely. Plain and simple. No, so. That's great. Some of those programs that you invested in yep. as a colonel, and, I, and I've seen full hand with the Operation Game Thief and then on to International Wildlife yeah. Crime Stoppers. Can you can you talk about that? Because it's one of my passions as well. Sure. And I like to plug Operation Game Thief and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers on the oh, yeah. show every chance I get because it's so important. Well, I mean, the reality is, Wayne, as you know, in any game warden that's working, uh, two eyes and two ears can't do it all. No. And you need, and I, we'd always say, when you lose public support, you're going to lose a mission. Mm-hmm. And by empowering people that are good people, that care about the resource as much as you, even though they don't have the same job, mm-hmm. to uh, get involved and feel comfortable about getting involved and reporting violations and being responsible outdoor users. And then folks, some folks may want a reward. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tried to enhance our program. Um, some ideas we had uh, picked up from Texas was the wall of shame, mm-hmm. which didn't go over well initially in Maine uh, with some of the sportsmen's group. But we're like, hey, this is this is putting it out there. This is real stuff, real cases. Mm-hmm. And when you actually see the wall of shame, and you see some of these animals and some of the fish and game that were poached and taken illegally, it should upset you mm-hmm. if you're an ethical sportsman. Right. And what's wrong with telling the story? Yeah. Call because, it an ace and ace. Because by telling the stories, people then that wouldn't call or may have been on the fence about it go, you know what? Mm-hmm. That's bull crap. That, that could have yeah. been my kid's deer. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to go fish there. We can't fish there now because of an invasive species been dumped in. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it just empowered people to report violations responsibly and do it in a way that um, if they didn't want to be involved and wanted to be uh, uh, anonymous, they could. Mm-hmm. And so we did a number of things with that. We did PSAs. Um, we worked with the Operation Game Thief Board, got new leadership there. We went through a major fundraising campaign so we could start offering uh, ample rewards uh, to folks as an incentive if they wanted it. And then we, uh, Chris Simmons and I remember talking one day, we said, you know, we need to get involved in the international and uh, national scene. And we'd kind of gone away from it. We'd done our own thing in Maine. And as soon as we did, we started seeing what everybody else's programs were doing. Mm. And it was a way for us to take new ideas. And every state's different. Mm-hmm. Um you know, every, the dynamics are different. The politics are different. Sometimes the actual resources are different, but, um, why try to reinvent a wheel, uh, when you've got some things out there on fundraising or awareness or PSAs or ways to get people involved 
and feel like they're part of doing what you do. They, people are excited about what game wardens do. It's an exciting thing. Mm-hmm. And um, good people would want want those people caught. That's why we have salaries. That's why we get paid. We have retirements. Right. And right. Uh, if we didn't, then we wouldn't. There wouldn't be any game wardens. Right. So why not take that uh, energy and that support and put it in a way that's responsible where we can catch people and. Our numbers went through the roof. Uh, we did a. We went away from. We still had a one eight hundred anonymous line, but we went to an online reporting. Mm-hmm. And I can't even tell you what I. I don't know what our numbers were, but it jumped. It almost doubled. Wow! The first year went to online reporting. Um, mm-hmm. People seemed even more comfortable doing it on a computer or on their phone versus mm-hmm. their voice even being heard. And right. we made some fantastic cases. And a number of our covert cases started off anonymous tips. Uh, through OGT. And some of these people were living right amongst our wardens in their communities, were never on the radar, and had done a good job at concealing what they right. were doing for years. Without the program, number of these folks never would have been apprehended, and they'd still be doing it today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And then uh, we got involved with, um, through the international, we started talking about, you know, license revocation reciprocity in the compact. Again, we were new to it. So we talked to other states and got draft language and legislation, and we pushed that through. And I think now, I mean, you could correct me because I've been retired for two years, but I think there was every state except for Massachusetts. Am I right? I think you are absolutely yep. correct. Yeah. Yep. And what we were doing is we would uh, we'd catch these bad crews, and they keep jumping around. Yeah. Vermont, New Hampshire. And can you explain the compact for sure. listeners? I'm sure. And that's one thing I, a lot of people aren't familiar when we use that terminology, the but compact. The game wardens are, but yep. uh, what what that does is so incredible. Right. So uh, the best example I can give is if you get picked up for OUI in Maine, driver's license gets suspended, it's a suspended in all the other reciprocal states. Right. It's the same thing with hunting and fishing privileges. And the challenge to it and the real success to it was identifying what were the level of crimes, fish and wildlife crimes that met that uh, threshold. Or even if you had that crime in your state. Correct. Mm. Yep. And, um, you know, you'd have people failure to pay fines or failure to appear. And uh, you put them into the compact and the other states would suspend them. They go in to get to their, get their uh, hunting license and they couldn't get it. Mm. You know, if they were from Rhode Island or they were from Pennsylvania. And that meant quite a lot to them, those hunting privileges. Oh, so no they'd be calling the courts in a hurry trying to pay their fines up here. <laughs> so it's a good tool. I think it's brought um, local you know, uh, agencies that are, uh, have state boundaries closer because there's a lot more communication on the compact stuff. Right. Um, and the people who have been stung by it realize it. Yeah. And it levels the playing field, rich or poor. It does. You're losing your license. And you're losing your license, or it doesn't matter if you have a million bucks in the bank. It doesn't matter if you have 500 bucks in the bank. Right. You're losing your license. So yep. the fine really doesn't matter because it's about that license and not being able to do that for a year, two years, three years. Yep. Um, which really stings and, and, and stings everybody, no matter where you are where you are on the economic scale. Completely. And yeah. most of these people that are hunting state-to-state to state or economically in a better place than you and I ever were. Mm-hmm. Oh, no doubt. I mean, that's the reality, right? Yeah. How many people can afford to jump around? A lot of these people did. But the other good part of it is before they get their license back, they have to take an ethics course, at least in Maine. And I've seen a number of these folks that were so um, bothered by that, they wouldn't even show up for their ethics course. And some of them just stopped hunting. And probably it's a better thing for the resource because they mm-hmm. never were hunters in the first place. They were right. poachers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So, and you guys built that up pretty good. 
using that Texas model. And then I came in and I used the main model, yeah. the Texas model, yeah. and, and stole all your guys' ideas and yeah. everything. And you know what was great about that is I saw what worked. And that's what's great about IWC, International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, because you all come together, you talk about what works, yeah. what's worked here, what's worked there, and then other states steal that idea. Or they, rather, they give the idea because they want you to use what's sure. successful. Oh, yeah. Um, you get you get some of the best uh, folks in that specific discipline of you know online reporting and anonymous reporting, and you're pulling some of the people who've been doing it for their whole life or their mm. programs have been in existence, and to not pull from that and share that, show, share those gold nuggets. Nuggets. Everybody wants everybody to be successful. Yeah. I think the key to the trailers, though, and I've thought about this a lot, was not just sticking the trailer out. We always had somebody manned at the trailer mm-hmm. to tell the story. Yes. Because a lot of people would be confused. We, I think we, we, uh, we developed more supporters by mm-hmm. having somebody at the trailer. So you have that interaction, that genuine interaction about with their kids about poaching and why this is important. And they may not even hunt and fish, mm-hmm. but they still, um, they still respect the hunting and fishing traditions of the state. And they respect the fact of what game wardens did and the importance of that. So their kids who may not ever hunt, but they like to watch wildlife, Absolutely. they like to hike, mm-hmm. uh, still understand that value. Mm. Um, because a lot of people, if you don't hunt or fish, when you'd see things, you may not get involved if it didn't really upset you. If somebody wasn't poaching deer, baiting deer right behind your place and affecting your deer herd, you may not call. But I think by having those interactions and educating the general public, right. not just the sportsmen and sports ladies, I think it. I think that helped a lot. Yes. Yeah. And even, I think we even need to do that more so now. So they know what's wrong and what they're seeing. Yeah. As well as when they're out, outdoor recreating during hunting season, wearing hunter orange is always a big thing. It is. You know, especially with the hiking we have in New Hampshire and Maine. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, an OGT hat with orange and hand it out to your hiker. Um, You know, that's, that's, that's just... Perfect. And it's branding. I mean, it's branding what you do to Mm -hmm. folks that are, I guess, non-consumptive isn't a great uh, term to use anymore, but folks that don't use the traditional hunting and fishing uh, opportunities that they have, but they enjoy what Maine and New Hampshire, Vermont, the whole East Coast has to offer. Right. Um, And we need them. We need public support, whether whether they buy a hunting fishing license or not, we need their support to be successful. Yep. And the biggest thing that's probably given us public support is something you you started or you cut your teeth on, I should say, yeah. with Northwoods Law. Yeah, that was an interesting project for sure. Yeah, yeah, and you guys blazed the trail, and there was a lot of blazing to be done. There was a lot, yeah. Thank goodness you started it because it went from Maine to New Hampshire. But uh, let's talk about Northwoods Law and its beginnings. Sure. Um, yeah. Because I, I'm, I'm fascinated about its beginnings because yeah. you guys handed it off to us in New Hampshire, and it, it was it was turnkey. It yep. was turnkey. These these guys were trained. They knew what to expect. They knew what to do. Yep. They they had it down. And, and I, I kind of laugh because I, I can see the first day the film crew gets on sign. They have no idea what they're getting into or what they're doing. Oh, and, what a growing what a, pains. What a growing pains. Exactly yeah. What a- <laughs> yeah. So really how it happened was um, Nat Geo, Nat Ge- National Geographic had sent a letter to the department to John McDonald got it. He was our public relations corporal. And, uh, I think they wanted to come up and maybe tease out the idea of doing something on the East Coast, Northern mm-hmm. United States, similar to kind of the Alaska, Alaska Troopers. And I had only been the colonel um, a couple of years, and 
John approached me and I said, no way am I taking that <laughs> on right now. I said, we're going to put film crews with every game warden and just, you know, um, the politics around fish and wildlife in Maine are heavy mm -hmm. uh, with our sporting groups. And um, I said, no, I wasn't comfortable with it. <clears throat> and uh, he's like, all right. So we kept the letter and we contacted them and said, not at this time. And um, it kind of went flat mm -hmm. for about a year. And then um, we received another letter from a uh, production assistant for Ingle who was looking, I think they saw the market to show the valuable work conservation, law enforcement, game warden do, game wardens do, and approached us. And I'd had a lot of time to think about that original letter we'd, get, we'd gotten. And, I, and I'd watched the Alaska Trooper shows and I said, well, it's kind of entertaining, um, but it, it didn't feel to me like that's what I wanted for what our game wardens did. We contacted uh, the lady and I said, let's sit down and talk. And at the time, Devin Platt, I believe he was showrunning for The Amazing Race. Um, okay. He was a showrunner for them. Yeah. And he actually lives in Portland. He's a great guy. Yeah. Another lady, and I, I'm forgetting her name. Anyways, we met. We started talking about this concept. And I said, you know what? I said, I started thinking, I said, we do good work. And a lot of people don't really know everything we do. Right. They don't recognize the tragedy um, we deal with as game wardens. They don't recognize the compassion of game wardens. They just see them writing a ticket for a hunting and fishing violation. They don't understand the public safety component, component in the search and rescue. I said, really, why not tell our story? And if mm -hmm. we tell our story here in Maine, it's only going to help everybody else in our profession. Mm -hmm. And what, why are we afraid to do it? And we had to kind of list out our fears and what are those fears. Right. And then we had to list out what are our goals. And I remember... Um, we met with some of the, we met with, I think it was Devin and some other folks and talked about what those goals were. Part of that was we wanted the ability to review the material and approve it. Mm -hmm. And my biggest fear was that there was going to be a situation in which, um, you know, we had a fatal, somehow uh, the footage came across and it was disrespectful to the family, the grieving family. Right. And, and uh, you know, I was a diver mm -hmm. for 12 years, recovered numerous folks. I ran our dive team for a long time. And so I always saw that side of it, mm. um, that painful side of losing somebody in a tragic event and some calamity in Maine. And um, so we started talking about that. And I remember him telling us, there's no way you're going to have control over what the content is. And I said, fine. And we're done. Yeah. We're done talking. Well, why don't you talk to uh, Steve Engel? He owns the company and he's the boss and let's have a conversation. And... I remember my first meeting, we had to deal with um, Heidi, his wife as well. She does legal stuff for him. But I remember having the first interactions with him. And, I, you know, for me, it's a, are they genuine? Mm. Understanding they're in the entertainment industry and they're going to have some goals for themselves. But if we could align those common goals, we could get what we wanted. They could get what they needed. And it was genuine. Mm. It wasn't made up. It wasn't fabricated. And it was authentic. And we could straight face it why not do it and steve and i talked and it was uh for me personally i could tell out of the gate he was excited about the project mm. he was willing to take some risks in us and allow some creative control and us to tell a story because they wanted to tell a story but we want to tell our story right and why couldn't we tell our story and it still benefit them mm -hmm. and there was a lot of convincing that had to be done steve and i were able to come to 
essentially a gentleman's agreement over a handshake and a number of meetings, number of discussions, and we grew to trust one another. And being the law enforcement type, we're suspect of everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it took a lot. Especially of, outsiders. Right. Mm-hmm. It took a lot. And, uh, and then we had the legal component. And I had to get permission all the way up through the chain uh, right. to basically take a state agency and do a public-private partnership in the entertainment community. Mm-hmm. And we worked through all that and uh, had the attorney general's office working on it with us. And we drew up a contract, the terms that allowed us to have the freedom we wanted to tell our story and that we had final approval of actually what was shown. Mm-hmm. And we always tried to take an episode and use it to educate the public, not only about what game wardens do, but about what we had for resources, mm-hmm. the unique characters and characteristics of our coastline and our mountains and our resources. Uh, Maine kind of is a, it's a destination place for a lot of people. Yes. So it was a good sell. So we went through all that, and then it comes down to we're going to start shooting the film crew show up and they have no idea what to expect. <laughs> Just <laughs> <laughs> and then we're taking all of our game wardens and we're micing them up and reminding them they're on hot mics all the time and uh-huh. stuff's going on. And yeah, and so there was a ton of growing pains for all of us. But I remember uh, pulling my command staff. We had 11 on the command staff. I talked to the major about it, Greg, who initially was not, didn't like the idea. That was one of those closed door discussions. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we're going to give away all our trade secrets and all that. I'm like, no, we're not. And so we had a great discussion and him and I came out. Yeah, we're going to try this. And we pull, I pulled the entire command staff and every, and this is the, one of the few times in my career. And I mean this sincerely where I didn't go with the group vote and it came back nine to two. No. And wow. it, was, it was the same fears though that I had had. Mm-hmm. And then I started making my case because I knew I couldn't be successful even without them. Without them. Yes. So anyways, uh, we went through that whole process and discussions and debate and we took it on. And when we took it on, I said, we're going to, we're going to do it. We're going to do it right. And we jumped into this thing and it, it took off. It, it, it was a great success for us, but like everything, it has a shelf life. Mm-hmm. Wardens get tired. Yes. It's exciting. Um, it changed a lot of their, their personalities became national personalities at stuff. Right. I mean, we had a warden at a rock concert. Uh, I think it was Rodney Atkins or something. And uh, he had, he identified this warden that had been on the show. I think it was him. Mm-hmm. One of the country stars. Yeah. We had people in airports and we'd be traveling and they'd recognize them. And it was pretty, it was, it was kind of neat. But, you know, that creates some friction sometimes in the families too. When mm-hmm. their husbands or wives are now... Yeah. celebrities. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a lot of fun with it. Uh, we had a good run with it. And at, uh, near the end, we knew we were getting close and we wanted to, we wanted to close it down in a good place. And we used the Gerald Largay search, um, as a place to close it. Cause that was just a tough search and a tough situation. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to, we didn't want it going down in a blaze into the Atlantic ocean. Like right. so many shows do. Right. And we didn't want to minimize the quality of what we're offering. And we felt we told our story. We felt it was a good story. We built public support. We educated people about what game wardens, not only in Maine, but California to Washington to, Mm. you know, Arizona, New Mexico, you name it. So as the project was ending, I had reached out to uh, Marty Garabedian, who was a colonel in New Hampshire, and I'd reached out to Danny in uh, Texas because... Steve had asked me, he said, what about some other places you think would be good? And I said, well, what's unique about us is we have an international border. 
we do uh, we have a big coastline, diverse communities. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I think those would be a couple good states to look at. And uh, I had some conversations with Marty and John Wimsat and uh, the, the Command Brass in Texas. Mm-hmm. I vouch for the process. I vouch for Steve's word, which is a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. But he had never once ever uh, violated that that trust. Right. In fact, he'd lost a lot of money at times because we told him to pull the show. Yeah. And um, we never, we never, um, when we did our contract, uh, they offered to pay us and we didn't take any money. I didn't want it to be for money. Um, they did do some donation to some programs and mm-hmm. stuff, but we, we didn't want to be seen as making money. I didn't right. want to have to deal with that, that yep. side of it. And we never did. And I think it was a, it was a great project and we were very proud of it and I can still be somewhere and I Animal Planet showed a rerun from one, one yeah. of the first seasons and I'm yeah. like, geez, and look at that, Chris McCabe and the Loon Whisperer. Yeah. Oh, there's just all kinds of unique stuff and, you know, you, it, that's, it showed him trying to rescue a loon to, uh, you know, we're in a search and rescue to we're on a manhunt for somebody in a mm-hmm. very serious public safety scenario. So the diversity, I think, educated the public. Mm-hmm. And we've had a ton of people come up, so we didn't realize you did that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. And then we continued on, and the only thing I made them do is take their main ward, uh, their main fish and wildlife stickers off their cameras. So oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> day, day, day one, Ben Shank there, and I'm like, oh, Ben's hey. a great guy. Yeah. I'm like, you got to take that sticker off the camera. <laughs> He's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, you're in New Hampshire now. Yeah. So, so they peeled them off. It was pretty entertaining. And uh, his first recording was on Mount Washington. Too, when I said, so you ever see anything in Maine like this? And <laughs> Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. So Ben was a great guy to work with, and you know, Bla- it was very clear you guys had blazed the trail. Yeah, especially with the film crews, they were just they were professionals that been there, that done that, they knew what it took. Um, yeah. They had to they had to train us. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know what people don't realize is waivers were signed for all those people that were on TV. So these people getting tickets mm. when their face was shown, they signed a waiver. They, they wanted to be a, a celebrity getting exactly. the ticket. Sometimes and I wonder if people actually intentionally violated to get on TV. <laughs> Probably, <laughs> but yeah, no. I had numerous conversations with um, both New Hampshire and uh, Texas when they were starting, and uh, watch the shows. They're great shows. And, yeah. Uh, some diversity there, stuff we didn't have, and mm-hmm. it was a great way to show the quality of people that are, work for your agencies. Absolutely. And you know what? The biggest thing I got out of that and I heard from the public is you guys aren't all like everybody says you are. Right. You give a lot of breaks. You treat people decent. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Because everybody talk. knows the coffee shop talk. The urban legends grow about somebody that wrote a ticket uh, for something, and by the time <laughs> it gets back around to you, it's for some thing that never even happened yeah and they went to jail for and they 20 went to jail years for 20 and years and, <laughs> yeah and then you get the guys that, yeah they the wardens wanted me one they wanted me to be a warden one time and <laughs> I, uh, you know you get all those stories and yeah but no i think it was good and it, it what excited me was seeing the kids yeah the young kids and you know we hi- we've hired a number of kids that grew up grew up watching it watching it isn't yep. that cool? Yeah, inspiring them. And uh, I'm sure there's awesome. some other wardens, um, young wardens, that probably watched that show. May, may have had an interest in being a game winner already, but um, maybe that got them fired up even more. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. 
Yeah, no, inspiring yep. the next generation of conservationists if yep. they're not going to be wardens too. Right. You know, yeah. and, and that rolls in. I'm hoarse right now from this Northwoods throwdown because I announced <laughs> at the Northwoods throwdown, but uh, th- that enabled us. Northwoods Law enabled us to to come together to a, do a charity softball game that started in Maine at the Sea Dog Stadium yep. with Chris Simmons leading the charge. Yeah, you know, working with Maine Operation Game Thief, New Hampshire Operation Game Thief. Yeah, having a great softball game up there and then just recently coming down here to new hampshire and having a dynamic softball game again very tight very uh, again the people you talk about the passion right the game wardens it, it shows through <laughs> in their softball of course it does. oh my goodness it's 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 very competitive but yeah. they're very professional and they certainly yeah. love each other because they're, they're cut from the same cloth oh yeah and i you know maine and new hampshire and vermont have always had a real close working relationship mm. against the warden from the warden's perspective with the field days and yes um you know having borders with each other you guys call and we know each other and mm. it's a friend competition it's really a competition it people need to know and yep it's Maine, no setup, Maine I'll tell you lost that. <laughs> uh, both games so the retired colonel will be sure to let uh, his folks know that they need to practice a little more next year oh, man. it was a lot of fun from it, what i heard it, it was a lot of fun we, yeah. we, we we had a great time and the fans like you said the kids were out there yeah. getting game warden signatures and oh, meeting great. their game wardens and uh, cheering them on and yeah at one point it was so deafening in the stadium it was it was unbelievable that you know something i never thought i would see in it was probably as my tenure but my extended tenure <laughs> it reminds me of a funny story i don't think it was john but one of your new hampshire wardens i remember when we were running the show he come up to me and he goes i tell you a funny story i'm like yeah he goes uh i had to go in and he had to go in and speak to a class and it had something to do with maybe one of his kids or or on our safety course or whatever and the topic of northwoods law come up and the CO from New Hampshire goes in, and he's in uniform. He's game warden, uh, CO, and and the kid starts asking about it. And he says, "Well, I'm a game warden." He says, "No, you're not. You're not Northwoods Law." And this was prior to your show. <laughs> he goes, "Here I am. I'm a game warden, New Hampshire, and yeah. I'm speaking to these kids, and they're telling me I'm not Northwoods Law." <laughs> So, but now you guys are, and you're big. You're big. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's popular. And um, you know what's funny about the title? When they wanted to name the show, I haven't shared this with many people. I'll share it today. We were at the conference room table. I'll never forget it in Augusta. And they, they wanted to name the show. And I said, what do you want to name it? So they started throwing some names. And they came up with Backwoods Law. And I said, that's not going to happen. No. Yep. <laughs> Backwoods Law. I said, no, that's not going to happen. And we all kind of looked around. There was a map. There was a North Main Woods map in all of our districts up there. And we said, what about Northwoods Law? And the light bulb went on. And I was like, yeah, we like that. And it yeah. took off. That's how it got named. Yeah. And, and what a brand it's become. Oh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know where it's going to go from now, but Northwoods, certainly New Hampshire, Maine. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's a brand. Vermont. Look, Vermont. Where, look where we are today. Absolutely. I mean, we just, you and I and uh, Dan just traveled around some absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous Northwoods country. country in Vermont. Yeah. And uh, we're so blessed here in the Northeast to have what we have. Yeah, and be close to the ocean as well. Oh, yeah. Which is another one of your passions, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you get me excited when you talk about this because it's way outside my wheelhouse. Yeah. And nor do I ever want to do it because I get seasick. Yeah. So I, I was lucky to pick some good days on a lot of my JEA right. details on the coast. Yeah. But, um, 
Yeah, but I'm the guy that watches Wicked Tuna. Yeah. You know, and I know they sit there hours and hours and hours before they ever catch anything. But, yeah. you know, some of the things you were telling us at Field Days about doing the overnights alone, yeah. fishing for tuna, and I'm just like, he's he's nuts. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've always been uh, I've always been one of those people that likes a challenge and whether it's marathon running, when I used to do that, I kind of take something on. I just want to, I get in that mindset of want to conquer it. Mm. And I always was intrigued when I was in the, of course, when I was in Greenville, we had the North Main Woods, you mm-hmm. know, that was where we trout fished and togue fished and salmon fished and deer hunted. And when I moved down to Those more- togue weren't big enough, were they? Yeah, there's some good ones yeah. up there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, not compared to tuna. Yeah. And uh, when I moved kind of down south, um, I lost that access, you know, that hour and a half access to what I considered where my passions were. Mm-hmm. I started uh, talking to people and um, was intrigued by this bluefin, giant bluefin tuna fishing. And I understood there was a pretty significant cost just to get into it. Like anything, I started researching it and talking mm-hmm. to tuna fishermen. And I learned right out of the gate. Whatever a tuna fisherman tells you for techniques, don't believe them. It's like a good <laughs> trapper unless you're his <laughs> apprentice. <laughs> so I made the investment. We uh, we purchased a s- smaller boat by far compared to what most people do. I bought all the gear and I got myself set. I'm going to go out and I'm going to catch a giant bluefin tuna. And one of my friends had caught a number over the years. He's pretty proficient in the ocean and he taught me how to crimp and do some of this stuff. And he says, you're you're pretty sharp guy. You'll figure it out. But I'm not going to fish with you and show you anything till you catch your own fish. Wow. Yeah. And I'm like, what do you mean? Come on. I'd show you how to do this or that. Mm-hmm. He's like, nope. He goes, they're such a, it's such a exhilarating activity and sense of accomplishment that I want you to have that all for yourself when it happens. So me and my fishing buddy spent the whole first year bluefin tuna fishing and we never marked a fish, never had a hookup. Uh, all I did was tear through gear on uh, poor beagle sharks or blue sharks. And I was pretty discouraged. I'd spend a, spend a fair amount of money. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was overthinking it. And I said, well, you know, when I toke fish, this is what I do. And they're an apex predator. And so, you know, how they hunt, uh, it's kind of like setting up. And to me, it's more like big buck hunting than it is uh, fishing. Um, how you think about it and how you go about it. So I started experimenting with stuff, and uh, I'll never forget, we uh, hooked up on our first fish. It was just at dark. We were just getting ready to pull the ball. We weren't going to stay out overnight. And my fishing partner with me, and the rod went off. And I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen the power. Uh, you know, when you've got a drag set at, you know, anywhere from 25 to 34 pounds, you're having all you can do to pull that line out. And it sounds like a shotgun going off when that thing goes and this thing is just stripping drag for everything it's worth. And you're trying to get off the ball and start your boat and keep the line out of here. <laughs> I mean, it's absolute chaos. And when you don't know what you're doing, yeah, you have to learn. And, and that's what we did. So over the a number of years we've been doing it, we've become pretty proficient at it and learned a lot of the, I'd say, small things. Um, I picked a lot of good tuna fishermen's brain. And there's a few that that I know and I personally respect that gave me a lot of pieces of advice along the way. Mm-hmm. But I still had to connect the dots. Tuna fishing's like anything. In my opinion, you have to do a, boat, a lot of little things right. And you have to be very particular about it. And if you do all those things, you increase your chances. And then it's just time in being out there and having a network and having the knowledge. And then 
that's just getting the fish on. Yeah. And then fighting the fish and landing the fish and um, it's a whole other ball game. But I've done, I've been to Alaska, I've been to Ireland, salmon fishing, I've been to Labrador and caught some of the biggest brook trout in the world out of, uh, you know, out of Osprey Lake outside of Goose Bay. I've done a whole host of things, killed a lot of big deer and nothing to me compares to every time I hook up giants and what they actually put you through because you're on the edge right so you get a tail rope on them and it isn't and they are just so powerful and i have such tremendous respect for them too and for me it's uh almost a spiritual thing it's a it's a it's this exhilarating outdoor thing you do um with nature you know it's like when you kill a big buck you're excited but you're almost there's an emotional sadness about Mm -hmm. it but to me it all comes down to the respect for that animal and um, treating that animal with respect, whether it's a tuner or it's a, a buck or a black bear or whatever you do. And that is so important to me. It's one of my biggest passions outside my family is is that outdoor, those outdoor experiences. Right. And I live for them. Yeah. And being retired now, I've got more time. We've been fairly successful. So yeah. uh, if you haven't been bluefin tuna fishing and you get the opportunity to go, um, it's kind of a lot like working night hunters. You're going to sit there a long time. Then when it happens, everything's chaos, and there's there's just this adrenaline, adrenaline dump. dump. Yeah. 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 I mean, you listed a lot of pretty cool things, and you said nothing compares to bluefin to no. fishing. No. And I was like, wow. No, not for me, personally. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if someone had asked me prior to getting into it, if you had to get rid of your guns or your, or your fishing gear, what would you get rid of? And I'll never get rid of my guns, but I would... I would probably give up hunting before I gave up bluefin tuna fishing. Wow. That's that's a statement because you you love to big buck hunt as well. That's right there. That's right there, yeah. 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 You're very successful with that. Yeah. 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 What's your best buck? Oh, weight-wise? Yeah. um, We've shot a number. That's how we do it in the Northeast is weight-wise. It's about the rack, (laughs) not about the track. No, it's about the track, not the rack. That's That's right. Yeah. No, I've killed a number of... uh, Good ones. I think, uh, you know, right around 250 was the heaviest. Caught, I've killed a number, 240s, 230s, 220s. Mm-hmm. Killed a couple just over 200. I've become a much better hunter. Be- number one, because of my hunting partner, uh, has taught me a lot about tracking. You know, when you're a game warden, you don't, you just don't have the time to put in. You may make a couple hours here or there. Mm. And fully committing myself to that for the day yeah. and letting everything else go. Um, and actually slowing down a little bit. I think the fact that I'm not, I'm in decent shape and I can still go all day, Mm -hmm. but, um, it's forced me to, um, it's kind of like going through warden school when they bring you through the observation course and you're new and you're missing all this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you've, you've got the end in mind and you're just blown by everything. Um, I'm at the stage now where I'm seeing a lot more than I ever saw. I have a confidence about it and I have a confidence just like I do. I can feel pretty with pretty good certainty that day, depending on the conditions, if I'm going to hook up with a fish or I'm going to at least be in the game mm-hmm. and deer hunting's turned into that for me. It's not throwing a stand up um, and just hoping for a buck, random buck to go by. It's putting in your homework, pre-scouting, uh, doing a lot of scouting in the spring. I tell people all the time, you're going to spend the same amount of time on a three and a half year old deer than you are a five and a half, a six and a half. So if you're going to take a track, take a good one. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Right? And uh, once you harvest some of those nomadic whitetails of the Northeast and you see their body size, 
you get that confidence to go mm-hmm. do it. What's really weird is I'm a way better shot at a um, a deer on the move than I am at from a bench, and I don't know why. Wow. I've thought about it. Instinctive shooting or? Yeah, I don't know if it's because of the training we've had. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I can get on a bench and do the breathing and squeeze, slow squeeze, and I can shoot decent. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely not the best bench shot, but moving deer, when it when it, when I, I just have to pull up and shoot, mm-hmm. I, I am, I'm pretty good at it. So you have to be able to shoot moving deer, mm-hmm. and you got to be able to see things. When I started uh, looking ahead instead of looking at my feet all the time in the track and then figuring out I was looking above a bunch of deer, you know, I'm looking out at the deer standing. A lot of these deer aren't going to be standing when you get them going. They're right. bedded, and all you're going to see is a piece of an ear or parallel line or a piece of their antler and um i think i've just slowed down and learned to read the deer better what they're doing yeah we've had some good success and super excited about this year yeah yeah i didn't hunt last year it's the first time since i was 15 i never hunted i was uh did the tuna go long tuna season go long or something (laughs) no my wife and i were building a new home oh and i didn't start it till the first week in november oh my goodness so all my buddies were hunting and all my friends were hunting and I did get to help a guy drag a nice one out, but uh, yeah, so I'm ready to go this year. And yeah. Looking forward to snow. Do, do you have a deer rifle that's your deer rifle? Yeah, I got, uh, I own a number of 7,600 pumps. Yeah. I like the 7,615. It's the old uh, Remington police model. Yeah. And uh, it's a 308, and I've got a, and then the 30, the Ot 6 I like, and I've got a Whalen and all those, but yeah. I, I've turned into. You know, whether it's Lanny Benoit or Hellblood or any of those guys, they yeah. uh, I've read all their books and mm-hmm. videos. And, you know, the reality is those guys are good hunters. Yes. And no one can ever take that away from them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just good. They're good. Number one, they're good shots. Mm-hmm. Number two, they have great eyes. They move through the woods and don't miss things. Yes. And, um, yeah, uh, I don't have the stride of my hunting partner. He can cover about twice the ground it takes me, but one pops up, I get a good crack at him. Yeah, and, and that's that's exciting, and I don't mean to minimize that compared to bluefin tuna fishing. But for me, you know, you get that nice giant main buck, and it's great. You know, mm-hmm. it's the it's just, and it's the same thing for me when I go over to that deer. It's emotional. Yeah, this thing survived, you know, five and a half or six and a half years. So, but I get to do that once. Bluefin tuna fishing, <laughs> I gas my boat up, and I get to go do it again the next day, and. And I go out with every day thinking I'm gonna gonna catch a fish. When I go deer hunting, I go out thinking today's the day I'm gonna catch up to that deer. I'm gonna kill a buck, or I'm gonna set up on a pinch point where I know they're coming through. And so mindset is part of it. <clears throat> huge for me. me. Mindset's been yeah. a huge part of my life. Yeah. With all the challenges I've had, if you don't start with the end in mind, you're gonna try to pick your trail as you go. For me, I just for me, I have to I have to believe I'm gonna get there. Mm. and then figure out the best way to get there. It may not be what I originally planned on doing. That's just kind of my personality. It's who I am. There's some bad parts of that too. We're <laughs> super competitive about it, but I'm not, we're not competitive uh, as fishermen or as hunters. The only competition mm. there is you and the deer one-on-one. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do, you know, it sounds kind of corny, but one of my best friends and I talk about Stephen Covey all the time. And practicing the abundance mentality and being happy for other people mm-hmm. being proud of your employees when they do something recognizing them mm-hmm. putting others before yourself sharing those gold nuggets with people so they can be successful there's a lot of value in that for me mm-hmm. but 
just like life, tuna fishing and buck hunting aren't a certainty. Yeah. Just when you think you got something figured out, they throw a curveball at you. But there are things you can do and you can be consistent at and you can prepare yourself for to put you in a better place to be successful. And that's mm. what I try to do. And a lot of that stuff I've learned just like any other people that would learn. They may think you're a game warden. You know everything about the woods, but no, I've learned a ton from reading the Benoit books and reading uh, Hell stuff. And I'm not embarrassed to say that. I tell him to his face. I think yeah. he's, I think they're the real deal, and yeah. um, I think it's great. Yeah, no yeah. Doubt. And I hope when I'm their age, I can still do it. Yeah, I'm gonna be trying. Yeah. Well, that that mindset, Joel. I I, I think you got there, and I think you're still going other places but uh certainly certainly you're an inspiration to a lot of game wardens yeah. for, for what you've done and how you've done it and the time frame you've done it in yeah. so but i really appreciate you sharing especially that and those those life lessons yeah something that a young listener can listen to and, and be thinking about that end game going out every day planning on being successful is for sure. huge and you know wayne when you've learned the most and I've learned the most because we've screwed up or made a mistake, <laughs> right? So if you if you kind of get there and it doesn't hurt at all, mm-hmm. you, you're kind of thinking, well, I should have got there without the pain. Right. When you fall flat on your face or you miss something or you lose a fit, I'm just trying to put it all into one package. Mm. It causes you to think and say, what can I do better? And uh, how can I be better? Yeah. Um, whether it's physically, but I think the mental part of this, everything we do, Obviously, you have to have good physical health, yeah. but the, your mental state and having good balance, talking to some of the chiefs here, the retired chiefs and the transition from going from, you know, your identity for 25 years is this local law enforcement person. Everybody mm-hmm. in your community knows you as that. You've lived in that glass house. And um, for me, having these other passions to balance it out. Um, it, you know, the job was a great job. It was an absolute great ride. Uh, it was a great run, but it never totally defined who I was. Mm. Um, I have a ton of passions and I tried to do that stuff along the way. And when the separation occurred, um, you could feel good about what you did and move on because the reality is you're not even out the door and they're already, they're already, <laughs> they're already fighting for your gear. <laughs> Am I wrong? No, you're and not. And they wrong love you. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. They're 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 they're, they're, yeah, they're gonna yeah, miss you, yeah, but, but the crows circle. The crows are circling. The ravens are there trying to get your spot and scope That's and your right. snowmobile That's and everything right. else. Your binoculars yeah. and yeah. yeah. What and size are those uniforms? Exactly. Yeah. So when we talk about guys preparing to retire, and we we, we pushed it as an agency, mm. I'm sure the new colonel is too. But you know, when you're getting to that spot where you're, you got to start planning for what you want to do beyond this because. Mm. There are so many exportable skill sets from being a game warden yes. to the private sector. Um, I mean, you deal with people day in and day out in every situation, things that people can't even comprehend, right? Yes. If you make it 25 years doing this, yeah, you're going to have some blunders along the way and fall on your head, but you're going to have a ton of life lessons and emotional mm. maturity. This is, a, this is a great career, and this is a great bunch we're hanging out with here. It's, oh, it's great to see. Absolutely. It's great to see all the retirees, and I look forward to this every year. Yeah, no yeah. doubt. Yeah. No doubt, doubt. Great yeah. group. So, hey, thanks. I really appreciate you sitting down with me and sharing all this. Yeah. I learned a lot about you, and yeah. I, I enjoyed it. So, yeah, no, that, this is fun. Great. I've never... I've never done a podcast. I listen to them once in a while, and I, yeah. I'm intrigued by them, but this was... It, for me, it's comfortable, and I love talking about 
what I love and what my passions are. So it's easy for me. And this is, that's exactly why I'm doing it. Yep. You know, we did the best job in the world. Now the best thing I could do is talk about the best job in the world. Keep supporting the ladies and men in green. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Thanks Great. a lot, Joel. You're welcome. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.